we get into this kind of automatic negative thought like, I am stuck. I will never be free of this. I will not get better. The only option is to just be free. And how do I do that is through killing myself. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Joining me today is Dr. Carson Falkel, System Medical Director of Behavioral Health at Bon Secor Health System in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is going to be great, Trevor. Okay, so you are a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist in addition to your administrative duties. And from talking, yes, uh, it seems like your heart uh, kind of sides with children and adolescents. Well, even when I look at uh, adults or the geriatric population, I see grown-up kids. So I guess you're right, yes. So what interested you in behavioral health psychology and everything that you're doing? Well, so I was in my fourth year of medical school. Um, I'm not sure if I knew that psychiatrists were, were medical doctors when I went to med school, but I was going to be a surgeon and my wife was getting her master's in counseling and I would go into a, a OR, an operating room in the um, early hours of the morning and come home after the sun had set and I felt like we were just looking at lab values, cutting people, and I know there's a lot more skill to it, but she would come home having spent an hour with each patient learning about their biology, their psychology, what was affecting them socially and spiritually. And I, I felt like I wanted to be in a field of medicine where I could really spend more time getting to know what was uh, actually going on with patients. And that, that's where the transition started for me. So will you define behavioral health? Uh, a lot of us hear the term, but it can be confusing and it has some uh, more meanings than uh, just the word. So that'd be helpful. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, the words mean a whole lot. And so um, I've always thought of, of mental health as depression, anxiety, PTSD, things like that. Um, and then there's the substance use disorders. And that term has changed over the years. But DSM-5 uh, is the diagnostic manual that psychiatrists use. And so that shapes our, our term substance use disorders. And so when we talk about behavioral health, that is an overarching category of both mental health and substance use disorders. But as I hope to talk about with you later, we, we flip that word around to be health behaviors quite frequently, and, and that more means people's choices about their health. Um, so I know this is super confusing. <laughs> no, it's but this it's good to clear up just so people can kind of get a some layman's terms so that they don't get uh, kind of discombobulated. So I know it's it's helpful, and that can mean that can mean uh, a, a mental health diagnosis as well as substance use disorder. It's it's often more than one, even though it's overarching. Multiple things can be encompassed in that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So some. Psychiatrists do psychiatry, 
but frequently we'll say that we are a behavioral health department or service line. And at Bon Secours Mercy Health, we, we call it behavioral health because it includes not only the field of psychiatry, like inpatient psychiatry, outpatient, um, you would see a psychiatrist go into a, a, a clinic um, in the community, that'd be outpatient. Um, but we also integrate into primary care, like family medicine, um, internal medicine, pediatrics. Um, and then we include all the substance use disorders. So behavioral health includes the whole gamut. Got it. Okay. So I kind of want to set, set the table here based on, uh, things I've, uh, researched and things we've talked about. Uh, I think when we hear mental health diagnosis or you know, behavioral health, uh, substance use, we go right for the cause and dig in right for that particular issue. But something we talked about, and I know you have uh, an interest in, which I think is a good baseline, is uh, social determinants of health, which is kind of where everything starts. Can you talk about that? Right, right. We're recognizing uh, across our country that to make an impact on someone's life, the clinical perspective, you know, maybe seeing them six times a year in, in the medical setting, maybe seeing them for a, um, a, a week if they get, if a patient goes to an inpatient hospital, um, that's a very little impact on someone's life. What really affects someone's health is their safety, uh, food security, clean drinking water. Um, there's many elements here. And what I mentioned earlier about health behaviors, we think that the choices that people make play a big role in their health, like uh, smoking, dieting, exercising, those types of uh, behaviors. Um, that, that's about 40% of, of someone's overall health are the choices that they make. And the more I learn about this, for one, the more I realize I don't know a whole lot. This is very complicated stuff. But I'm starting to question what are choices that people make and do people actually have uh, volition or the ability to change the choices they make? We're operating under a system that says people do. But, but this goes deeper into basically where people start. You're born, what kind of environment you grow up in, what kind of um, social aspects, uh, socioeconomics. So it goes deeper and it, 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 it's able to give you as practitioners, like you said, a more in-depth look at their life to get a baseline for what you're dealing with. Exactly. Yeah, you said it perfectly. And it goes back to the conversation of uh, nature versus nurture. And I'd say with 100% confidence, it's both. And what we're learning, psychiatry is about 10 years behind other fields of medicine. I, you know, the, the kidneys make urine, the heart pumps blood, the brain makes the mind. And the mind is the functional organ, it's really hard to understand. And, and that's what really uh, encourages me about this field. There's an art to it. It's complex. I love that complexity. Um, but we just don't understand it that well. Um, and what we are learning is that there's certain genes that uh, allow a, a person to have a behavior. 
And it's not like there's a depression gene and then someone gets depression if there's a problem there. There are thousands of these genes. And uh, we're starting, now that we've done genome-wide sequencing, we know that certain genes lead to certain things. That's the, the nature part, the bi- biology part. But what really fascinates me is, for instance, there's one gene, uh, FKBP5. It controls the way someone responds to stress, their cortisol response. If, if as a kid or baby, in those first two years, you witness violence between your parents, that gene gets altered. And for the rest of your life, you have a different stress response leading to the ways you interact with people, perhaps holding a job down because you might be impulsive and you, can, and you can't. Uh, so that's what I mean when I say I'm not so sure that people have much power over the choices they make because a lot of it we're learning is coming back to genes and then the social determinants of were you in a stable house where your parents divorced? Did you witness violence? Those types of things. We, we're learning that the adverse childhood experiences, we call it the ACEs, mm-hmm. those traumas in childhood actually underlie the social determinants of health. And maybe it's just because I'm a child psychiatrist, but I think we should be looking more at uh, those first few years of a kid's life. No doubt. Totally agree. So I'm going to kind of go through things that uh, I, in talking to you, that are important to you, but you cut in whenever you want, but we'll kind of just churn through them. But uh, talk about depression. And I know that you know, screening and different uh, you know, hospitals are going to be graded on, on different things. But uh, yeah, just, just talk about depression as a whole and how that's important to you. Yes. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, so for me, we have a, a real opportunity to save lives right now through suicide screening, uh, prevention, safety planning. So I do want to get people with depression well. We know that one of the major risk factors for suicide is depression. But you know, most importantly, I don't want people to die from suicide. And then take a step back. I want people to live full, healthy uh, lives where they are in relationship with other people in the way they want to be. And so in, in medicine, again, social determinants, clinical side is only about 10 to 20% of someone's whole health. But we want to do as a health system everything possible to ensure that we're catching depression early. And the earlier we catch it, the longer someone... Uh, has to get out of their depression before they get stuck. Uh, the, the brain really creates these circuits, and the more you live in that negative circuit, it's harder to get out of. So we screen once a year uh, in, in all primary care clinics and in some specialty clinics uh, for depression. And what I'm really excited about is we also are screening for suicide. So depending on how you do on a depression screening score, we're going to also be more explicit about screening for suicide. And we're doing that uh, in the outpatient setting, in the emergency department, or if you come to the an inpatient hospital. And that's through uh, patient health questionnaires and in uh, listening to your podcast, uh, you mentioned uh, acronym SIGICAPS. You can explain that. But that's how you're getting this data is have people 
filling things out and giving background? Right. There's many ways to do this. The, the patient health questionnaire, the PHQ, is just one way. Um, people can do it themselves uh, online. Um, but it's just it's nine, nine questions. Um, we only do the first two, and depending on how people score, they'll get seven more questions. That ninth question asks about self-harm or thoughts about suicide. Um, it's not a perfect tool, but it's the best window into someone's distress related to depression. Uh, and so, you know, we have education for our providers, our doctors as well, that if someone's positive, that doesn't mean necessarily you have depression, but it's just the window to begin exploring uh, what's going on in someone's life. We did about 625,000 screenings last year across Bonds Corps Mercy Health. Uh, this is a high priority for us. And let's talk a little bit about that because having depression and having a depress I don't know how you framed it, but having a depressive thoughts or a depressive moment, there's a big difference there because I think we're quick, not just necessarily your profession, but the public to tag somebody as being having depression. There is a difference. Oh, absolutely. And along the spectrum of, again, going back to that DSM-5, our, our, our tool to make diagnoses, there's a spectrum of diagnoses related to depression. We call them depressive disorders. There's many. Uh, but you might start with uh, an adjustment disorder where something's happened in your life and you're grieving, but it's a little bit more than grieving. You're, you're starting to have uh, sleep issues, eating issues. You're feeling like you're just down. You're losing enjoyment in things. and things. It just lasts a very brief amount of time. But if that that loss of interest and, and uh, poor, poor mood, depressed mood, if that kind of sticks around for several weeks and you feel like you're in this rut, you're not getting out of it, that's where we start to transition to more of a major depressive diagnosis. And, and even within that, there's mild, moderate to severe. Um, and so, you know, we use the PHQ to help inform us on the mild, moderate, severe. But um, sometimes this spontaneously goes away and we realize that someone was just grieving. And so, you know, I never want to be quick to label someone with a diagnosis. Um, but I, I think, Trevor, to... I was on a panel not too long ago with another podcaster and we had a great discussion around over pathologizing in psychiatry. And from my perspective, psychiatry and behavioral health, we've been uh, the stepchild of medicine uh, for so long. We've been so over, um, underfunded um, heart disease, cancer is so well-funded compared to mental health that, we tend to talk about major depressive disorder as uh, an extremely common diagnosis because we're really trying to elevate it to the level of getting funding. But at the same time, the risk there is over pathologizing people. And so I'm glad that you brought that up. Now, do you think <clears throat> the, the funding and not getting the attention and awareness is, do you think, how much does stigma have to do with that? So much. Um, I think that's the, the major issue. Um, I, I think the, a reason there's still stigma is because we just don't 
completely understand behavioral health conditions. But like I mentioned before, we're several years behind other fields of medicine. Um, but we're making great progress. We have great treatments for, for um, behavioral health conditions. Um, I think some of the stigma comes from, I would say most people understand that substance use disorders, for instance, let's just focus on that. I think clinicians and a lot of people would say, you know what, that's not a moral failing. Um, something else is going on. They're, they're just not a weak, um, willed person. But what we're learning is that when you use substances, drugs, um, it hijacks the decision-making parts of the brain. And so it's almost as if substance use disorders hijack willpower, volition, choice, free will. And so I think our society, and especially the medical field, we, we don't quite have our hands around people making poor decisions uh, when, in fact, the disease they're suffering from is a disease of decision-making. That's not necessarily in the DSM, but that confusion then bleeds over to stigma and uh, trying to understand why people do what they do. This is, I mean, it's a philosophical, uh, for people of faith, this is a faith issue, but it's also a biological issue, and it's just complicated. Right. Yeah, but the more we can get the word out um, and fix the ignorance, I don't use that in a punitive way, just like you said, people just don't understand and... um, but I, like, I, I agree. I think things are going in the right direction. Um, so to just cap off uh, depression, you've mentioned that uh, depression remission is a big, also a big focus. And you said that hospitals in the next few years are going to be graded on this. T- talk about that. Yeah, they already are, which is great. A lot of people, um, you know, if we look at blood sugar, um, the endocrine system, we already have a hemoglobin A1C. It lets us know how well your um, your insulin is working to control your blood sugar. And if you have diabetes, your number is going to be high. You have type 2 diabetes. We don't have that in uh, behavioral health. We have a PHQ, the patient health questionnaire. We can look at your score, make sure it's below a 5, which is considered remission. Um, but we don't have a blood test. Uh, and they've tried over the years to look at spinal fluid, et cetera. So we really rely on someone's self-report of how they're doing. Um, so we don't quite have the best outcome measure, but the, but the best one we have to date is that patient health questionnaire, or if you use what's called a, um, the Hamilton depression index, the HAMD, you know, we want a seven or below. So, I, I believe that if you do something called measurement-based care, if, if someone comes in, reports symptoms, we're going to repeat that questionnaire to make sure that you are in remission, your symptoms are gone, uh, you're back at work, you're functioning in life, you're spending the holiday with your kids if, you, if that's what you have and what you want to do. I want you to be well and living life. And too often in behavioral health, we just start a medicine or we start therapy and we never check back in to say, are you really better? Uh, and so health systems, uh, the payers, like the insurance companies, they've caught on to this 
And so we are now looking at depression remission scores at 12 months. Personally, I think that's too far out because I want to know if someone's better in three months. But um, in in South Carolina, where I live, I just started measuring it. And we went from 0% to 34% of our patients in remission by starting to repeat this measure and change the therapy if, if it wasn't working. So that, that's how we're going to get ahead in behavioral health is, is um, becoming like other fields of medicine. And if you can show that data, everybody loves data, maybe that will help long-term with, with funding and uh, the powers that be see this improvement nationwide. Uh, I think that's, that's great. Every little step counts for yeah, sure. To speak to, you're right. To speak to the funding issue, I, I don't know if you've talked about this on your podcast before, but I would say one of the biggest issues we have is that the funding streams, there's, there's multiple funding streams, but from a state level, frequently uh, substance use disorder funding and mental health funding is separated. That should absolutely be the same source of funding because patients have both conditions. Um, it can go e- either way of what, what leads to what, or you just have two co-occurring conditions. An even bigger issue for me is that we pay doctors from insurance companies differently based on if they are psychiatry or behavioral health or if they are a different field of medicine. We, we say physical medicine or mental health medicine. Um, and so I, I, I did air quotes when I said that. Sure. Because, of course, the brain is physical. Uh, we just don't, you know, the payers don't, the insurance companies don't, uh, lump it all together as physical though. So I could be a psychiatrist and I'm co-located in an office with your family doctor. You see the family doctor for your, um, let's say for your depression, that family doctor is going to get paid differently than if you saw me, your psychiatrist for depression. Um, that's how, that's how stigmatized our nation is. Yeah. I mean, if you throw everything medical into a bucket, and then mental health into its own bucket. I mean, that's a purest form of stigma. And, and then what happens, Trevor, is that we know integrated care is the best form of care. Being able to see, you go to your family doc and um, you screen positive for depression. And you, we have a counselor in the office that you can talk to. If you get put on a medicine by your, your family doc, then you have a psychiatrist working behind the scenes to um, make sure that it's the right medicine, that you're not having side effects, to do measurement-based care like we talked about. Um, that's called the collaborative care model, and, and that's what we do at Bonk's Core uh, Mercy Health. Um, but th- what happens is because the, the depression is treated well and goes into remission, the, the health savings dollars are larger on the quote-unquote physical side so your diabetes gets better your copd gets better uh you do other health behaviors like you stop you stop smoking and then your asthma gets better all of that savings that money goes to the physical side uh and you save dollars uh, on the physical side meanwhile you're now utilizing more mental health services which is what we want but what um, payers see and what some health systems see is, oh my gosh, your expenditure went up on the on the physical on the mental health side. We're losing money, 
but the cost savings comes on the on the asthma side and that just that makes it even more complicated okay <clears throat> this is a a sticky wicket for me and it may not be a very popular thing but to lead this off, are you saying that if somebody goes to their family doctor and gets prescribed Prozac, it's cheaper for them and for insurance and everything to do that as opposed to come see you? Well, so psychiatrists are uh, considered specialty specialists, so it depends on your insurance of how uh, primary care specialists are covered. So there might be a different copay if there is a copay at all. Um. So in general, if you go to a psychiatrist in network with your insurance, it should, it should be close to the same price as um, your family doc. And the Prozac doesn't cost anything different. What I'm saying is on the, on the payer side, that bucket of money comes out of a different pot. And so it's hard to trace back to the outcomes of the intervention. And that's why we don't have good data, to your point about needing data. These are different sides of the insurance company that don't talk to each other. Okay, and you may not respond to this or have to give a political answer, but I think going to a family doctor for mental health issues is not effective. And I'm speaking from my own experiences. I was with a internist who I went for to see my knee or my back, but he also gave me my psych meds, which turned out to be a catastrophic injustice but but what is your what is your thought on going to the source of education and expertise as opposed to trying to get an all-in-one solution yeah that's um something i struggle with every day and why i think integrated care is the best way to go where you have a team of physicians providers um around you uh making sure that we're giving you the best level of care, getting you to the right level of care at the right time. And so if you came to see me and, and you had run-of-the-mill depression, um, and, and there's multiple types of depression. There's atypical depression. There's dysthymia. So, you know, a psychiatrist is trained to figure that out. But if you just came to a psychiatrist and said you had depression, I might start the same Prozac that your family doc's going to start Um a psychiatrist will probably ask more questions about, um, have you ever had a bipolar episode? Ha have you been struggling more with alcohol? How's your sleep? Now, a, a good family doc will do the exact same thing. I believe that the person that you feel closest to, that you can be honest with and vulnerable about what you're going through, that is the best first step because they're going to know you, know your story, and, and, and maybe try one or two medicines get you to a counselor. I think that's a great plan. We know that primary care, which means uh, family medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, uh, they, they prescribe 70% of this country's psychotropic medicines. And um, if that doesn't work after maybe one, two, three, I think it's then time to see a psychiatrist. I, th I think if you're having bipolar symptoms, heavy substance uh, abuse issues, maybe going to a psychiatrist right away is warranted. But let me throw something else out there. We're learning a lot more about our genes 
and why some patients respond to some medicines and not, and, and not others. Uh, there's multiple tests out there. This is a field called pharmacogenomics. And by doing a simple cheek swab, we learn about the way your liver metabolizes medicines and your other genes. Um, they're called pharmacodynamic genes that say, you know what, Prozac's not going to work well. We need to get you on a different class of medicine earlier in treatment. And a recent study said that primary care did just as well, if not better than psychiatrists using pharmacogenomics to, to get a patient on the right medicine. So that's a field to look into. GeneSight uh, is one of the tests out there. Um, and so if you do want to stick with primary care, I mean, that, that's kind of a great option as well. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not knocking primary care, so that I didn't want it to come off that way. But I'm so glad. No, I understand. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up gene site testing uh, because I'm a huge proponent of it. The, the first time that when I first went into uh, the, the place where I am now, uh, the Linder Center of Hope, for my, for my mental health uh, and substance use struggles, the moment I walked in the door, I got a cheek swab first day. And I just think, I don't think it's marketed well enough. I don't think, uh, I don't know, but this could save people so much time than trying to, you know, throw a dart at a target just somewhat randomly to get you in the ballpark of the family of meds that you need to, that you need to, where you need to go. I think it's a great thing, and I think it should be. I think it should be more marketed. And I wanted to get your opinion on something. Yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of providers, uh, and I have such an interest in this that I almost always bring it up uh, about you know the genomic testing. And it seems like a lot of them don't use it, and if they do, it's a last resort. But what's your? I don't know if you've run into that, but what what is your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, psychiatrists uh, are in a hard spot here because um, many of the medicines we prescribe, if you open the box and read that folded up piece of white paper called the package insert, there are dosing requirements based on pharmacogenomic information. So Selexa, one of the most commonly prescribed medicines the max dose used to be 60, and I remember, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, all of a sudden they realized that 60 milligrams caused heart issues called QTC prolongation. So the max dose was changed to 40. A lot of patients did not do well coming down on that dose, but a lot, a lot of psychiatrists did bring them down to 40 milligrams. Uh, if you look at that package insert, the max dose is not 40, it is 20 if you are a poor 2C19 metabolizer. And so there's a medical liability in not reading that package insert and knowing how to prescribe it. Trintelix has it, Abilify has it. Uh, so many of the medicines do. Some are contraindicated if you have a certain metabolizing pattern. So it does baffle me why some prescribers are so opposed to it when the FDA language is in the package insert. I think that they just don't, they may not realize that. Yeah. We don't have many studies on it. We, there is only to my knowledge, one large study and it looked at a psychiatrist using gene site compared to a psychiatrist uh, 
not using GeneSight. And the psychiatrists that used GeneSight did better on the remission and response um, groups on, on those outcomes, which to me is really significant. I think there's a 50% improvement in, in remission rates. Still, remission wasn't that great, but there was a significant improvement. Um, and so the American Psychiatric Association has come out pretty strongly that uh, pharmacogenomic testing is not ready for prime time. So psychiatrists are caught in this middle of the APA coming out with a statement, the FDA's package insert saying you got to do it for some meds. The study said that uh, on those patients, they had had to have failed one medicine. The way I utilize it is if a patient has failed one medicine, they have major depressive disorder, uh, and we're struggling to find that, that next alternative because of symptom, um, lots of side effects or, or um, maybe a family history of struggling to land on the right medicine, I'm going to do it for the second medicine. Um, the other thing is I, I'm a big believer in uh, L-methylfolate. I think a lot of patients, one of the reasons they're struggling to get well is they just have, they struggle to methylate folate, that B9, uh, vitamin. So they, they have uh, trouble making dopamine or epinephrine and serotonin. So sometimes you don't even need to be on antidepressant if your problem is that MTHFR gene. So that would be a reason to use it first line. Can you find out if you have a B9 deficiency? So if you were to look at uh, folic acid in your blood, uh, B9, um, a deficiency in that value does not necessarily relate to the inability to methylate folate to create L-methylfolate. We have to activate folate in order for it to clear homocysteine, to create CME, and then create serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine. So doing a simple blood test to see how much folic acid you have is insufficient. That's interesting because if you can avoid taking an antidepressant, it would be great to find out or have that be a standard test to find out if you're deficient in this certain thing, because, you know, who wants to be on meds if you don't have to be? Yeah. My, my whole thing is go to the, try to find the source of the problem, the etiology. And so you are a pretty good case of not believing in the genomic testing. Uh, I watched a video and you said that you were at a convention a, a few years ago and you were reluctant to go up to these booths because I, I don't know if you didn't believe in it or you didn't want to broach the subject at that point. Talk about that and what changed your mind. Trevor, you're good at looking on the Internet. Hey, I just like to um, be prepared. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, I was really hesitant to start doing it because I heard horror stories of patients getting charged exorbitant amounts. And they're not being a whole lot of clinical evidence. And uh I think what you're referring to is I had a patient with uh, OCD who I struggled for two years to get them on the right medicine. Uh, there was a suicide attempt. There's multiple hospitalizations. Uh, I had gone to this conference and, and heard about uh, GeneSight, didn't do it. On his second hospitalization at an OCD specialty hospital, they did a test, and it was exactly what I, I had been seeing but didn't know enough to to know differently that he wasn't, and this is a pediatric patient too, uh, he wasn't going to respond to the three medicines that I tried and um, was going to be more prone to side effects because he was a poor metabolizer at certain places. And uh, that psychiatrist, not me, 
uh, put him on a medicine. Uh, it's called uh, duloxetine, Cymbalta. It's not approved in kids, and um, it's not one that I historically would have gone to for OCD, but he dramatically got better after that uh, and was in full remission from both depression and OCD, um, which really got my, my mind turning on what am I missing out on? Uh, I, I don't think that um, we know everything about pharmacogenomics. I think this is the tip of the iceberg, but it, it, it's a tool that can be very helpful. Uh, and it's not, it's here to stay. I mean, it, I would encourage everyone to learn more about it because the field is just rapidly advancing. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so suicide, another big subject. Um, and for, for parents or guardians, more importantly, uh, what are some things that we can be looking for risk factors, behaviors uh, that, you know, cause a lot of people will say, I didn't see anything. I saw no signs of unhappiness. I saw nothing, but this still happened. Right. That's so scary. And, you know, to be completely vulnerable, I've recently lost a good friend uh, to suicide that no one uh, in our community knew was struggling at all. Uh, and so that makes me question, you know, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist. I do turn my work off, my work brain off when I go home, but I still didn't pick up on anything. So, um, for me, uh, you know, suicide is is growing at a, a rapid rate across our country, unfortunately, up more than 30% in over half of our states, uh, really increasing in the pediatric population. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Uh, that has to happen. We have to, to um, get to know each other's stories and listen for those vulnerabilities, decrease stigma. There is a social contagiousness to it, though, because I, I believe social media, it, it's becoming uh, so common to talk about it that it might be lowering the, the, the inhibition just a little bit. And so I, I am concerned about how, how we talk about it. Um, for me, for, for parents, and I've got three little boys, the most important thing is knowing your kids or your family members. And then, so you have this baseline and then looking at a change from that baseline, because the hard thing in kids is they don't just get uh, an anhedonic, depressed, withdrawn mood. I mean, they might be irritable. They might be sleeping more or less, eating more, eating less. It's really hard to diagnose depression in kids. Uh, that's why we have child psychiatrists. And, and usually even then, sometimes only time will tell what type of a, a disorder is present. Um, but I think for parents, they need to put their phones down when the kids get home. Uh, they got to get the kids off the Internet, off social media, off TikTok, off the Xbox, whatever, for enough time, maybe just 10 minutes a day, to do something together, to check in. Uh, because without that, you really are going to be at a loss for what symptoms to look for. You got to know your kids. No doubt. You know, it's a, uh, social media is a whole other podcast, but it's just the worst. You know, it's it gets sensationalized. And I was talking to somebody recently on the show about, uh, you know, when Robin Williams died of suicide, there was an uptick in suicides. 
which I thought was weird because I thought it would go down for some reason, but it seems like uh, people sensationalize it. The media goes right for the jugular on the, how, how it happened and why it happened instead of maybe what the person was going through. So yeah, we got a, we got a hard road to hoe on that one for sure. Yeah. Um, the hard thing for me with suicide. So <clears throat> it is frequently people say it's like a, a the 10th leading cause of death in some ages, but if you look overall, I mean, in the 10 to 34 year old age group, it is second. And if you go up into the next age group, it's fourth. So it is right behind cancer and heart disease. Uh, and so we really need to be paying more attention to it. Um, what I think happens in some cases, and again, there are multiple types of depressions, but we have this uh, reptilian automatic reflexive brain. And then we have our front part of our brain that is more uh, reflective and it, it puts the brakes on our behaviors, our systems, it processes our emotions. I think what happens sometimes is through the use of alcohol or uh, other uh, issues with impulse control, we, we see on social media all of these suicides so we, that seed is planted, and then we take down our inhibition a hair, and then we, we lose that uh, higher thought processing, and we get into this kind of automatic negative thought like, I am stuck. I will never be free of this. I will not get better. Um, the only option is to just be free. And how do I do that is through killing myself. Uh, and so I think that it is, we, we lose that, we, we go back to that kind of reflexive brain. And that's where therapy and meds come in because they allow you, they, they lengthen your fuse just a little bit, give you a little more ability to gain insight or hear, hear a positive voice saying this will pass. Um, and so uh, sometimes I, 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 there was a play last night that I, I went to on suicide. It was amazing. And they, it was about a kid who lost a parent. Um, and there's a lot of self-blame and guilt. What could I have done different? Did my parents not love me? But even if someone loves you so much, if they get in this rut of that reflexive brain, they can make a decision. Uh, or, and, and that decision is, is not necessarily like what we call decision-making ability. I mean, that they get into this automatic, I'm just going to die thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, if there's no more uh, bigger clue for providers and funding and uh, that that we need to get on board with this as a country, because uh, I think you mentioned, and there's a stat out there that it takes sometimes takes people 10 years to, to address this medically, uh, you know, m mental health or, or depression, anxiety. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're definitely talking about it, but ho hopefully things will continue. But as we wrap up, I wanted to just discuss the podcast that you did uh, for your practitioners at Bon Secours. Uh, I thought it was really cool. How was that experience? Oh, it was great. I love doing podcasts. Um, you know, we could send as many emails out there as possible, and, and some read, some don't. Uh, but really, my goal is to create very brief 10-minute podcasts that people can get up-to-date information. Um, don't 
probably have the same type of technology that you do. So I'm, I'm excited to have done this one with you, but I think it's a great way to get info out. Are you, are you finding that it is? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, there's a lot of them, but it's, uh, it's fun. And, uh, are you going to continue? Yeah, absolutely. We have a behavioral health podcast, uh, series and, there's just so much expertise within a large health system like ours that uh, we're just trying to get that get the information out. Okay, well, uh, I appreciate you taking some time to uh, to talk with us. A lot of um, very important stuff uh, got into the technical weeds, but I think people need to hear that as well. So, uh, thanks for being with me. I appreciate it. You're welcome, Trevor, and. Uh, I apologize to everyone for the technical weed. Sometimes my goal is to confuse people with information so that we can uh, go back and, and clarify through our own research. Um, again, the more I learn about this, the more I realize I don't know a whole lot, and we got a lot of work to do ahead to uh, reduce depression and, and suicide. Oh, this was great. Good luck in the future. All right. Thank you, Trevor. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound, artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.